So we've been walking through Nehemiah, we hit the gates, and boy, we kind of did a whole side series just on this. We're on the very last one, and they're significant because they are symbolic of the gates that we go through as believers, and also the gates we're going through as a church as well. And so it starts off, if you guys can remember, I should do a quiz for those of you who've been here, it starts off with the, the, the sheep gate, where you hear the shepherd's call for the first time, and he starts calling you, and you hear his voice. You go there to the fish gate, the fish gate is where God shows his power in your life in a personal way. It's not a big miracle, usually a small miracle, but something in your life he takes and uses to show you his power. And that's, that's the fish gate. Then we go from there to the old gate. The old gate's the gate of the law. But we learned two things about the law. First of all, according to God's law, we're, we're all falling short and we're sinners. But the other thing we learn about the law is he puts it in place for our benefit. We go out from there into the valley, into the wilderness, so that we can hear his voice better. We come back in through the valley gate, which is the next gate we went through. And um, so we've kind of been walking through all these gates, and then we go into this other gate that no one seems to like very much called the dung gate. And the dung gate's where we get rid of the refuse in our life, and we have to get them out. And this is kind of an important gate, because if we don't do that, we end up going back out in the wilderness and coming back up the sheep gate and starting a whole procedure over again. We need to get this junk out of our life that's poisoning it. And then we finally get into the, the fun gates a little bit. We go to the, the water gate, you know, where we talk about God's water and his pure, his, you know, washing over us. And then we get and go to the fountain gates where the Holy Spirit's anointing and protection comes to us. Those were the fun gates. Then we go to the horse gate. The horse gate was the battle gate. This is when we joined the battle. This is when we realized that we're in a battle. We're in a war against righteousness and sin. And we need to jump in on righteousness side. And so, so we end up in, in the battle. And, that, and then we, last week we went to something called the East Gate. The East Gate is the gate that Jesus is going to return from. And so we talked about why that matters and why it matters that Jesus is returning. We talked about the prophecy that's already been fulfilled regarding that and that was kind of a, an interesting gate. And today we're in a very final gate which is called the inspection gate. So I'll show you this in Nehemiah. After him, one of the goldsmiths made repairs as far as the house of Nethanine and of the merchants in front of now this Mifkad gate is actually the inspection gate. So as far as the upper room to the corner. So the inspection gate uh, is also sometimes called the gate of judgment. Now it was believed that this is where the soldiers would line up before they would go out. And the general would literally inspect the troops before they would ride, ride out. So the inspection gate is that. Uh, there's a lot of other things that took place there, you know, in the inspection gate. But that's, that's where this is. And this is kind of the gate of judgment. So after Jesus comes back, we know the next thing that happens is we all face Judgment Day. And that's, uh, that's prophesied and told to us. Jesus talks about it. It's talked about in the Old Testament, talked about in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. As, uh, as the writer in Hebrews puts it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So this is where we stand in front of God. That's what the judgment gate's about. Boy, this is a fun gate to come to, right? This is why I get them to this gate. This is, this is the end. This is where we meet, we meet God, and, and God pulls out his book, and, and he talks to us about where we were in our life. And the funny thing is that this has become part of our culture, this idea of judgment gate, you know, uh, judgment day. You know, there's 
you know, movies called The Judgment Day. And, and, and if, you, if you look online, if you ever Google this stuff, which I always do when I'm doing a sermon, you'll see all kind of different people who have their own version of Judgment Day. You know, like if you're an Irishman, you have this Judgment Day. If you're a cop, you get this Judgment Day. A fireman gets this Judgment Day. It's like God has a different book for everything, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's maybe fun to think of, but it's not biblical. He has one book, the book of life, and that's it, in his word. And there aren't, there aren't any cheat sheets there. And the, the problem, of course, with, with this is that when we arrive there, we're going to be asked what we did with our lives, not just the good and the bad, that's you know, very legalistic, but what we did with Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the main thing, because believe me, if it's all based on our good and our bad, we're done. We're all done for it. And, and so what we need is we need to say, what did we do with the foundation that Jesus gave us? In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, by the grace of God he has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. That's the Holy Spirit, right? But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying, I laid this foundation in Jesus by the grace of God. And now the Holy Spirit builds upon that foundation. You understand the foundation is not the end. A lot of times people seem to think, well, I, you know, I got my fire insurance or whatever they want to call it. I'm saved. I'm good. Uh, no, that's the foundation. We're supposed to be building upon that as well. Now, if anyone builds this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital, judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. Fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, then the builder will receive a reward. So that's, that's what he's saying. He says, the end, it's not going to be just, oh, I, I was saved. And he said, well, God says, and then, and then what? You know, I saved you for a purpose. I called you out for a purpose. Then what? What did you do then? When, and it's not that it's based on works, but he wants to see us living a life and building on top of the foundation that he gave us, right? We're not supposed to simply sit there, wow, this really great flat plateau, and that's it. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Here they build basements, but I've spent time in Texas, right? Everything's built on a slab in Texas because it's like clay underneath of it, and so there's a big slab, you know, and then they build a house on it. Could you imagine up to heaven? What'd you do? Well, I had this great slab, and Jesus says, well, I did that. What'd you do? You know, what have you done with it? And I did nothing. I put a tent on it and a little tiny fire, and I hung out, you know, whatever, or I stayed at somebody else's house, and, and Jesus said, no, what, you were supposed to be working, you know? In the parable of the talents, he comes back and says, what have you done with the talent I gave you? I mean, God wants us doing things, not just sitting around waiting for his return. So that's kind of a message that I could go on and on and on. And some preachers really love to preach the hellfire and brimstone message and tell you're all going to burn in hell unless you repent. That's not my style, as you know. I like to also, the problem with Judgment Day and preaching about Judgment Day is it's too late. <laughs> the talking part's over. When you get to, when you get to Judgment Day, it's, it's over. You, you, there's nothing you can do about what you should have done. It's over. And so I hate to do sermons like that. I prefer to have sermons like I say, hey, here's something you could do tomorrow. Here's somewhere you can go. And so I thought, boy, it'd be really great if there was something that was kind of given to us as a hint as to what we should be doing now as opposed to waiting. And as it turns out, there is this book of the Bible that's really about that. Uh, and I know that uh, when I start into the book of Revelation, I get one of two responses from the people. Some people, oh good, finally. I love Revelation. It's my favorite book. Like 10% of you. Uh, and the rest of you go, oh man, no, no. I don't want any parts of that. You know, it's weird. You're off the edge of the map, mate. Here there be monsters. You know, stop with the monster stuff. I don't like that part of the Bible. And I generally stay out of the book of Revelation, as, you, as most of you know, um, because I'm, you know, not an end times kind of preacher. But the book of Revelation has some interesting things in it. I just want to point a couple things about the book of Revelation for some of you who kind of avoid it. Uh, first of all, 
this thing, the revelation, most people think are the terrible things that are happened to people. You know, that's the book of Revelation is all about the terrible things that happen to people on earth. It is about end times. But when the author John begins the book, he tells us, because he called it the revelation, right? But he tells us what's a revelation of, and it's important to know this, that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, here's what I'm writing about. I'm writing about the, I'm trying to reveal more to you about Jesus Christ. And if you get caught up in all the weird events, you're missing the point of Revelation. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus. It's about his triumphant uh, return and, and about how he triumphs over everything. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's always a revelation of Jesus Christ. And whenever you're reading the weird things, you need to cycle back to where Jesus is mentioned and focus on that because this is all about Jesus and what happens. Now we know about the book of Revelation because it was written and it was mailed out to seven churches. That's how we know about the book of Revelation. It was written on Patmos Island, which is where the apostle John was sent in exile. He's the only apostle who was not killed for his faith. Uh, the only one. And so he went to Patmos Island for many years because they were afraid of him leading a revolt. Uh, that never happened. He eventually comes back and he fulfills his promise to Jesus to take care of Mary. And that's how, that's how uh, John will finish out his life. There are some, some people who believe that Revelation was written first and then in the final years of his life he went back and wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, some people believe it went the other way. But the interesting thing is he mails this to seven churches. And what's interesting about that is each church is mentioned in the Revelation. It's like he's saying a warning to the churches and saying, look, this is what's going to happen if you don't get right, because God has a message for each one of you. And so that's where I want to start. I want to talk about the seven churches that he writes to and what God says about the seven churches. Seven, of course, is a perfect number, and it's a number that God will use a lot throughout the Bible. So it's no mistake that it's seven churches, but, but I want you to understand that each one of these churches represent churches today. This is not just churches that are historically accurate, but these are churches that actually have the same characteristics today. Uh, it isn't going well for most of them. There's only one that really goes well for two who seem to be righteous, and the rest of the five have terrible things Jesus is going to say to them. And I want you to take a look at that because we can easily fall in the trap. And I want to share the church we're trying to be in, in this list, just in case you're wondering. Okay, so first he goes to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a huge city, and of course we know about Ephesus because we know about Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, was written to them, right? And so he said, I have a message for you in Ephesus. It was the biggest church probably going on. It was very successful church. This is your mega church kind of thing. It's very big, but it's older than a mega church would have been. So it's like a big, you know, traditional church by this time. He says, look, these things, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus, says this, look, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know you cannot bear those who are evil. So they're diligent, right? The people who, they, they're good at finding evil people. Um, we would call that judgmental. But he says, I know you cannot bear those who are evil. And, and you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not. And have found them to be liars. We're actually called to test everybody, everything. You know, test all things. Hold on, hold on fast to what's true. So we're called to do that. There's nothing wrong in that. But boy, you're really good at this. You're good at testing people. You're very, very, very good at that. Uh, you've persevered. You have patience. You've labored for my name's sake. You know, you have all kind of ministries going on. You've been feeding the sick. You've been doing all these things. But nevertheless, I have this thing against you. This is one little thing. You no longer love me. You have forgotten and you have left your first love. Oops, you know, just that. Just, just that little thing there. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. 
He says, you've fallen. Do you understand? You, everybody else thinks you've got it going on, man. You're a big, successful church. You'll call out liars. You're really good at that. You'll stand in your pulpit. You'll tell people what false prophets are. And you've done that. You have the ministries that you seem to be doing work in my name. But you stopped loving me long ago. There's no love anymore. You're just doing religion and traditions out of habit, out of respect for the tradition. You've kind of fallen into that. He says, uh, you need to remember that you've fallen. You need to go back to loving me, or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove you. I'll remove your lampstand from the place. In other words, we're supposed to be a light shining. He said, I'll just take you out. If you don't change, I'm going to take you out unless you repent. Now, repent's a scary word because usually it's said like this. Repent! That's not really the way it's supposed to go. Um, actually, this woke you up, didn't I? Ah, I'll tell you. Um, repent actually means to change your mind. It actually means 180 degree spin. Repent means I was doing this and I've changed my direction. That's what repent is. He says you need to repent. You need to change your direction. Go back the way you came. right? Because this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now I'm going to come back to that. He says which I also despise. I also hate that. You've got some good things going on. But you need to repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who ever comes, I will give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise. He says, it's not too late for you. He says, I've, 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 I've got a place for you. I've got food to give you. But you need to come back to me. You need to come back. This is a church that's doing deeds out of tradition instead of out of love. They're gritting their teeth and they're just doing it. Here's the problem. We would look at that church and say, man, they got it going on. But if you don't love God, he says, you've fallen. You're, you're no longer anywhere near the church I need you to be. I'd rather have you taken away, you and all your ministries, than to be there doing this stuff in my name without loving me. I don't need that. I need servants who love me. That's what I want. I'd rather have you gone. I will take you off of the lampstand. That's a very, very powerful message to a lot of churches, right? Because it's very easy to fall into habits. And we do them and we forget why we did them. My father used to tell a story about this woman who uh, serves her husband a pot roast and says, Honey, I love your pot roast. They're great, but you always cut off both ends. I was wondering why. Is it to get more juice in there? Or why do you do that? No one else I know does that. She said, I don't know. My older sister taught me to cook. I have no idea. So they went to the older sister said, Hey, why'd you teach her to cut off the... She said, My older sister taught me. It turns out there was five of them. I'll save you this story. They go back to each one and none of them knew because they finally got to the oldest and she goes, Well, that's how Mama taught me. Well, Mama was a retirement home. Now they're all interested. So they go to visit Mama. You know, and they're all sitting around her and, and she can't understand why they're all visiting. That's never happened before except for holidays. And they ask, you know, Hey, you taught every daughter how to cook a pot roast by cutting off both ends first. Why'd you do that? She goes, That was the only way I could fit it in my pot. You know, and so, you know, sometimes we get these traditions, we fall along, we don't even know why. It's, it's amazing sometimes. So we have to be careful that we don't, we don't fall that. Elsewhere in the Bible, God actually says, I hate your traditions. And it's because it's supposed to be about loving me. It's not that he hates us doing things, uh, pageants or whatever, but we have to love him first. If we lose that love, we've lost our reason to be. Now, this is a church no one wants to be. Uh, this is another church. This is Sermna. Now, this is a very, very rich city. Very rich. Which makes this very interesting. Uh, he says, these things, says the first and the last, is Jesus, who was dead and came to life. I know your works. I know the tribulation and poverty, but you're really rich. He says, I know that you're, you think you're poor, but you're really rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and they're not. 
their synagogue of Satan. There are people who are attacking you who are in the church, is what he's saying. I know that. I absolutely know that. Uh, and if, it's interesting that the, pers- the thing he calls out the most of the persecution is another church. What's actually happened is the Jewish church has turned against them and they're throwing them under the bus. And what's gone on is in this particular city, they worship the emperor of Rome. That's who they worship first and foremost. This church won't do that. And because of that, Rome looks at them a little bit skeptical. And the Jews, happy to have the target off of them for a moment, keep, just keep saying, oh yeah, look at those guys, look at those guys. And they persecute them. And so because of that, they have a hard time getting jobs. They don't get, any, you know, it's hard to get people. They're small and they're struggling because they refuse to worship the Roman emperor instead of God. He says, you're rich, don't worry. Because I'm watching, I see this, don't worry about it. I absolutely know what's going on. And he goes on, he says this, do not fear any of these things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation, but watch this, for 10 days. He says, you're going to be tried and tested, but I'm not going to let it last. 10 days. No one knows why 10 days, by the way. Some people believe it's because that's how many fingers you have in your hand. It's like just, you know, that many, you know. But it's just like, it won't be long is what he's saying. It won't be, you know, it won't be years and years. It'll be short. But don't worry. Don't fear the tribulation that you're about to face. You stay strong. Be faithful, even if it's, they want to kill you, because I'm going to give you the crown of life. So he is watching them, and he is saying, I see it. Don't worry about it. I know, that, I know that they're trying to put you out of business, but I'm still here. And I see what you're doing. The interesting thing is, if we were watching this church from the other side, we would say, well, there's a church really struggling. You know, there have a lot of people there that don't have any money. If you've been there, oh my gosh, the place has run down. You know, we would say, this place, I don't know, it doesn't seem like God can be blessing them because, my goodness, they're struggling. And, and we're used to seeing blessing as this big thing, like, you know, money should be pouring in and they should be happy and people should be coming. And should be, that, that's how it should be. But, you know, you cannot judge the righteousness of your lives by the riches of your lives. And we want to do that sometimes. Well, God must be blessing them because look how rich they are. God must not be blessing them because look how poor they are. You know, we would have thought Jesus was not being blessed by God. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Right? So, so we have to understand that the persecuted church is, is still being watched by God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now he says, don't worry. They're rich because they're going to end up in heaven. So don't, don't just try to look at them from the outside. He says, don't worry. Uh, and then we come to this church, the compromising church. Right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know where Satan's throne is, which is basically where they dwell. He says, boy, Satan is right in your midst. You hold fast to my name. You don't did not deny the faith, even the days in which Antipas my faith, was my faithful martyr. So one of them was actually killed for the, for the Lord's name in that church. Is, oh, then, yeah, you held fast then. Uh, but he was killed among you, this place where Satan dwells. He says, but I have a few things against you. Uh, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans. So it comes up again here in this church. Okay, so what is that? Some of you may know from Sunday school or a CCD class who Balaam was. Uh, We don't really know Balaam very well. We know his donkey better, right? Balaam's ass because he's going someplace. And you you may not really know the story, but you know this part. where he was trying to go somewhere and his donkey wouldn't go. And so because there's an angel in front way to kill him. And so he actually speaks to him through his donkey, you know, which 
which is, you know, for me, always been comforting to know if God can speak through an ass, he can, he can continue to do that every time I sit up here. So, you know, that, that's kind of always been comforting to me, Balaam's ass. But, so he spoke to him and, and he stopped them. But some of you may not know the backstory of that. What's happening is Moses and the Israelites, or this is the book of Numbers, is coming through uh, with all these people and the king sees them as a danger. And says, oh man, we need to get them cursed. So he goes to this prophet and says, I need you to go curse them. He says, well, I don't know if I can curse them. It's only whether God says I can curse them. Uh, and uh, you have to pay me a lot of money. So they, he goes, and that's why God stops him. says, you're not allowed to curse them. And so he goes back and tells the king, I don't, I don't think I can curse them. He says, well, try anyway. So he goes, he goes to curse them. And to come out of his words is blessing. He blesses them. He blesses them three times. Three times he goes and curses them, and it comes out of his mouth as a blessing. The king's really mad. You know, it's like, you know what? Uh, I, I hired you to curse them. You keep blessing them. That's, uh, that's not the same thing. Uh, so I, I, I need you to, to back off. So that is the story there, but Jesus picks it up and tells us another thing that comes left out of uh, Numbers. Balaam taught Balak, that's the king, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In other words, Balaam went back and said, I can't, I can't curse them. But here's what you do. You infiltrate. Don't worry about them. You get them to start serving your gods and you tell them they'll be blessed that way. And you get them having, you know, because a lot of those sexual, a lot of those uh, pagan religions had a lot of sex in them, like right in the service. So as you start getting them doing that, and you get some sexual morality going, and you'll, you'll just numb them. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll blunt the whole force of them. They won't have the power to really do anything. And that's what he does. They actually infiltrate with, with improper teaching, with, you know, good-looking women who lure them over uh, to their other religion, and they teach them how to mix in with their religion the religion of Balak. Once we do that, he says, you've got them. And so, when, when God says, you, you, he, he compares the, the people who are following Balaam with, with the Nicolaitans, and it's the same thing, he said. It's the same thing. It's the same thing where they infiltrate and they bring in other false religions and they pull you away with sensuality. He says, I hate it. I really, really hate that. He says, you don't do anything at all. Says you're just you're just really okay with it exactly that way, and so he, he's trying to tell them I, I I need you to come out and away from all that because the devil's right in your midst. You've let him come in is what he says. He's right there, and I'm telling you what I've been in churches. I thought whoa the devil was there. You know it's like what they're teaching is not the Bible, and they're trying to mix in things, and it's going on all over the country. Some of the biggest churches in the country in fact. Because it's easy to get people to come and listen to that. And so that's it. Now, then he goes on to another one. This was interesting because he says, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. I know your love. I know your service. I know your faith. I know your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So you, you just keep adding on works. You just keep getting more and more and more. He says, uh, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you've allowed that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce by servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, that seems a lot like the one we just came from, but this is a little bit different. The interesting thing uh, about this, this area here is that they actually would worship other gods inside of the same synagogue. They just mixed them. Now, the spirit of Jezebel shows up in the Old Testament. It's, it's, Jezebel was the queen wife of Ahab, and they're the ones always against the prophet Elijah uh, in, in, in the Old Testament. But the spirit of Jezebel is a spirit of seduction. 
That's why you don't see many girls named Jezebel. It's not a very nice name. And by the way, the way Jezebel ends up dying is dogs eater. So it's not a very, not a very nice, pleasant uh, person. But, but she was able to rule Israel for many, many years by just simply seducing Ahab and bringing them all over to the other gods. And, and God's saying to this church, they're in your midst. You're letting them right there. They're right there. Right amongst you is, is where they are. Then we get uh, <coughs> to this one. He, he goes on and says, I'm going to kill her children with death. <laughs> All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So he says, don't, don't worry. I'm coming. And I'm going to take care of this as well. And then we get to this one. The dead church. Sardis. These things I say to he, these things says that he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you're not. You're dead. Now be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, for I have not found your works complete before God. You talked about some people doing, you know, works. You're not even, you're not even finishing. Your works are like started and you don't even completely finish what you start off. And, and uh, he says, I know exactly about that. He says, remember, therefore, <coughs> how you've received and heard. Hold fast, repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I'm going to come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I'll get there. You have a few people who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. But most of you have not. Now Sardis, by the way, was a workman town. And uh, they were run by guilds. And if you think unions are bad, <laughs> some of you don't like paying union dues, how would you like to be part of a guild? Because every guild had its own god. And you had to worship that god to be part of that guild. And so they were choosing their livelihood and their, their business over God, is what they were doing. He says, uh, yeah, you're dead. You're not even finishing your works. I, I see. And that would have been really an insult to any workman, you know, because you know, workmen take pride in their finishing their works. He says, you're not finishing the works for me. You're, you're going off and you're mixing. You're mixing. Now I'm going to put, bring this next church in a little bit out of order. Because this one actually uh, comes last. But I want, to, I want to put the good church last. So this is the church probably that uh, spoke to me the most when I started coming back. Before, before we started Spirit Chapel, uh, I really felt convicted. God took me here uh, through one of my Bible studies in the morning. And it really struck me. These things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, he says to Lacedonians, Lacedacians. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. You know, it would be nice if you're one or the other, he says, uh, but you're not. He says, but since you are not, you are neither cold nor hot, but actually lukewarm. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, here's why this hit me hard. Because he's calling them lukewarm Christians. And we know, those of us who were raised in the church, never ever to use that term to describe yourself. You know, we, know, we, don't, we may not even know the reference, but we know it's a bad one. So we stay away from that reference. So I never call myself a lukewarm Christian. What I, would, uh, what I call myself is a, a moderate Christian, or maybe not, not, not too Christian Christian. You know, and, and there was a reason for that. I mean, I was raised as a preacher's kid. And one thing you find out when you're raised as a preacher's kid is everybody has certain expectations of you uh, that aren't fair, but they always like, well, you're a preacher's kid. I expect, you know. And so the adults have these, these different expectations. So do the kids. You know, and you got left out of a lot of groups. Well, you're a preacher's kid. Like, you'll tell on us. You know? So early on, you start realizing, wait a minute, I'm a preacher's kid, but I'm cool. You know? And so you had to learn how to kind of do that. Well, pretty soon, because you know, then you end up back in church, and church wants you to be a preacher's kid, so you learn how to slip back into it. You know? And I got really, really good at slipping in and out of Christianese. 
You know, I was, I told you before me, I was 12 years old. I could pray a King James prayer, which is nuts, but I could do it you know, because that's what was done in my church. And so I could slip in and out of Christianity as I needed. And I thought that was good because it made me more accessible you know, to my friends who were sinners, you know. But as the Bible tells us, bad company will corrupt good morals, right? And so I wasn't really much of a blessing to them, uh, but they were, they were pulling me way out. And I got very good at kind of floating back and forth between those two. And I thought that was the best thing to be because then I'm not, you know, one of those Christians that kind of offends people all the time and, and puts people off. They're always like just so prickly, you know. I, I, I thought, well, I'm good because I'm right in the middle here. You know, I'm kind of a halfway Christian, if you will. I, I'm, not, I'm not nuts. I'm not you know, it's like, okay, so Kentucky Fried Chicken has original recipe, and they have the extra crispy. Okay, I didn't want to be extra crispy. I wanted to be the original recipe. I wanted to be right there in the middle, you know, so I was easily accessible. You know, if those of you don't like Kentucky Fried Chicken, my apologies. But I'm just saying, that's kind of how I lived my life. I tried to find that, that groove in the middle there, where I, you know, I really wasn't too, well, but I didn't go bad. I mean, I wasn't as bad as my friends, and I knew that. I could tell them all, you know, these friends are worse than me, God, see? I'm doing better than that. And so when I got to this verse, and I kind of got to that, you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. I was kind of reading, I thought, well, I guess that kind of describes me. And then he gets to this part, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'm thinking, oh, that can't be right. You know, because I always heard spew. You know, that was kind of, I'll spew you out of your mouth. You ever hear that? That's the Old Testament. That's, that's, uh, that's Old King James. I mean, I will spew you out of my mouth. Spew doesn't sound so bad. It's kind of sounds like chew. You know, it's like spew, chew. And so I thought, what does this word really mean? So I looked it up, you know, and I thought that it'd be like, you know, just like Maybe even, I don't know, I'm getting a gross from <laughs> Throw up in your mouth a little, you know, kind of thing. But no, 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 no. This word would translate, just to be real with you for a minute, to projectile vomiting. This is like when you go for distance, not for style. Jesus is saying, I am going to throw you as far, you are so repulsive to me, I'm going to throw you as far from me as I can get you, right? And <laughs> I read that out. I actually, I was outside of my, my deck and, and doing my Bible study, and I actually put the Bible down and I said, that's a little harsh, you know, because at least they're trying, this Christian. You know, they're not, you'd rather them be cold? Yeah, I can't, at least they're trying, because I'm like arguing for me, right? That's a little harsh, don't you think, Lord? I don't understand what's wrong with kind of being this halfway Christian. And I didn't expect an answer from him, but he came right back in my head, it bing, you know, this thing, because I said, why are you so harsh, these people who are halfway Christians? And he said, because I didn't go halfway to the cross. He says, I'm all in for you. See, that's why I can't stand lukewarm. If you're cold, that means you don't know the Spirit. But you'd know better. And you want to stay lukewarm? I'm all in for you. And that's when I suddenly realized that these churches in Revelation really, really speak to us today because that's where I was. I really was. And so he, he says, you say you're rich... You become wealthy, you have a need of nothing, but you don't know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, God just puts it right out there, right? And he says this, he says, uh, I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may really be rich, white garments that you may really be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with the eyes of salve that you may see. Come away, he says. All in. Come on, all in. Right now, let's go all in together. And that's what he was challenging. He says, look, he says, uh, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. So you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be feeling bad, he's saying, if, if right now you're feeling a little bit guilty, like maybe I am a lukewarm Christian. He said, I love you. That's why I'm rebuking you. 
because I don't want you there anymore. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him. I will dine with him and he with me. He says, here's what's waiting for you. I'm ready to come in and really embrace you if you're willing to embrace me. And to him who overcomes this, if, he says, if you get out of this, this sort of just this belays you're in of not doing anything, bad or good. He said, I, I, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. It's like, I picture that on his lap, by the way, not, not without him. <laughs> I picture Jesus and God, like, here, sit on my lap. And I over, just because I over, just as I overcame and I sat down with my father on his throne, I'm going to bring you to heights you can't imagine. But not if you're lukewarm. That makes me sick. Lukewarm people, he says, make me sick. So, um, how then can we move on from here? So these are bad churches, right? No, the only other church so far was the persecuted church, and no one wants to be persecuted, let's, let's be honest. The rest of them were all like Jezebel and, and Balaam and all this stuff, and lukewarm and spit out, and, and where are we going? Okay, so now let me show you the, the faithful church. It's very interesting to me. The only faithful church that God mentions is this one. And it's Philadelphia. Don't get excited. It's not the city. It's the church. The city was named after this. And of course, we know it means city of brotherly love. Uh, this was founded by actually a ruler who had a really great relationship with his brother. And that's why he named the city of Philadelphia. That's what it means, city of brotherly love. Not, it's not the people where the eagles are and the Philly Flyers. That's a different place. Okay, he says, this is, this is what I shall say to them. This is what, who, who, he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts. And he who shuts and no one opens. He says, look, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one will ever shut it. He says, I know what you're doing, and I have opened a door for you to me, and no one can ever shut it. And that's pretty cool, right? God says, people may try, but when I open a door, it stays open. It's going to stay open for you. So I'm like, wow, what were they doing uh, that they were able to get that kind of a thing from God? No rebuke at all. Just, I know what you're doing, and because I've opened a door to me, you have, you have access to me all the time, and no one can ever shut that door. Here, let me show you what they are. For you have little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'm thinking, that's the church we need to be. You can be little. You can have a little strength. It's okay. But here's what you have to do. You have to keep his word and not deny his name. Now, how do we deny God's name? Because we don't want to do that. How, what does that look like? Well, we see this in, in Titus, um, where Paul's writing to his, his protege, Titus. He says this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. Have you noticed that, by the way? Like, some people, there's nothing sacred to them. Yeah. He says, look, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Here's how you can know this. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. He says, that's, that's, that's how you'll know that. He says, if, if, if they profess with their mouth, that doesn't matter. What are, what are they doing? Because just like James says, you know, like, I don't care if you say you have faith. If you have no works, how does anybody know? What is faith without doing things out of faith? So we're keeping his word and what his word compels us to, to do things. Right? Are we doing that? Are we keeping his word? Are we, are we being that faithful church? He goes on and says this, Look, because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. The test to those who dwell upon the earth. I know I'm getting into end times here, and I just want to touch on it just briefly, but that's quite a promise. There's trials and tribulation coming to the whole earth, but not to you. 
I have an open door and I will take you out before this happens. Because you have persevered. Because you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Doesn't matter how big, you get the picture, this is a very small church. Not Ephesus. Ephesus is huge. But this is a very small church. But it is doing the right thing. A very small church doing the right thing and God is watching, you know. People, people ask me, how, you know, how, how big are you? I said, we're big enough that God knows exactly where we are every Sunday morning. <laughs> and he, he can find us like that. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, he says, that's okay. I will keep you from the hour. No one will take you. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, and I am coming. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to what you have. In other words, sometimes we want more. You know, we have this great relationship with God. Oh, we're trying to get more. You know, just hold fast to what you have and keep doing what you're doing because I'm blessing you and I'm, I'm seeing you. I'm hearing you. I know what you're doing. I'm paying attention to you. You've got what you need right now. Stop trying to do more. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, I just felt this was as an exhortation to this, this body. Just keep doing what you're doing. I'm watching. I see it. Let's just keep going there. I'm coming. No one will ever take your crowd. I just kind of feel like this is what this is kind of our words, right? Though we're little, we need to keep his word and do not deny him and persevere in his work. That's all we need to do, right? And God says, that's fine. I, I'm not measuring you by size. I'm not measuring you by strength. I'm measuring by do you keep my word and do you deny my name and do you persevere? There's another verse real, real quick here and then we'll be done. Um, in some of you may have heard this before in Zechariah. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begun. You know, sometimes we, we do things, we're trying to bring a change in our life, and it seems so small. And God says, I don't care, you're doing something. You're trying, you're, you're coming towards me. That first step is what you have to get, and the rest of them I'll help you with, right? But you have to make that first step. There's a thousand steps between you and God. He'll do a 999, but that first step, you need to turn towards him. Right? So you can hear his voice and you can follow him. Don't despise small beginnings. A lot of times we do. We're like, oh, this isn't going anywhere. You know, how do you know that? God says, I, I rejoice to see the work begun. You know, you, you prayed about something you never prayed about before. That's a step. That's a, that's a beginning. You know, you, you had a conversation uh, with somebody who you normally have these huge fights with and you got all riled up, but you didn't say anything. You know, that's a step. So I'm, I'm glad to see that step begun. You know, little, little things. Little things. Do not despise small beginnings. What you do is you, you, you pack into those. You say, boy, that was better. Lord, thank you for that. Now let's get better. A step, a step, a step, a step. I've said this before. A walk, which is what we're called to, a walk of faith. A walk is simply an interrupted series of falls. Just take a step. That's what he's saying. And then always remember, just hold fast to what you have. God sees it and he loves it. Would you all please pray with me?